According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Of the passages you see on the screen, we've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke all up there. Go ahead and turn to Luke. Luke chapter 5. We're proceeding this morning to event number 4 in the Galilean ministry. Galilean ministry in our Harmony of the Gospels has 56 events. And we are ready this morning to tackle episode number 4. The four becoming fishers of men. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to sanctify our thinking. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We want to thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together in the name of Jesus Christ, to study the living and abiding word of God, to, uh, to worship in, your, in the holiness of your presence, Father, in our corporate prayer meetings, and the privilege we have, Father, to lift up even, uh, even total strangers, Father, because in, in Christ there are no strangers. We are brethren. We are family. Father, we understand this morning that there is a, uh, a Baptist local church in the Dallas area that is, uh, that is grieving. And we want to join them. We want to support them and strengthen them. And, uh, Father, we do lift them up. Uh, we recognize uh, or we've heard this morning that uh, the pastor's daughter drowned. And we just don't know much more beyond that. But, Father, we thank you for the privilege of allowing us to be fellow laborers, fellow co-workers, and uh, fellow prayer warriors on the wall. We just thank you. We praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. But five minutes ago, we got a phone call while the prayer meeting was still going on, and uh, Noel and Kathy O'Dell were down in uh, South Padre Isle. In fact, they're still down there. And uh, there was a church group present uh, with a big bus full of 50 or 60 young people from the uh, church. Baptist Church up around Dallas. I can't remember the name of it now. But anyway, the, uh, there had been a, an accident and uh, the pastor's daughter had drowned out there in the Gulf of Mexico. So anyway, they're currently in all kinds of shock and turmoil and whatnot. And they're loading up the bus to take everybody back home to Dallas and so forth while the other items there are going on. So anyway, they uh, called for prayer and we are certainly pleased to, to offer that up. All right. Well, one of the more well-known incidents in the life of Christ is this one. And uh, so I don't anticipate that uh, this will be a difficult passage to get through so far as the, the, uh, the basic elements of it is concerned. I think that there are additional details that we gain from the exegesis that go beyond this particular message and really deal with a much larger view of the Christian way of life. Before we actually look at the text of Luke chapter 5, one of the things I say we could start doing is uh, more of the geographical studies in the process of this. And so I found some pretty good maps that I thought were helpful in uh, doing this. Of course, you may have maps in the back of your Bibles. You may have uh, other maps available to you as a, you know, a Bible atlas or some other product that you may have at home. Uh, I like these relief maps uh, because they give some detail. They're not exactly oriented 
north up, and that bugs me a little bit, all right, because this is kind of northwest up, and that, that bugs me. But if I can get over that, then uh, this is a pretty decent map. Now, it, uh, let's see, should be able to scroll on it here. Here we go. You want to tilt your head. Hey, uh, <laughs> then it's north up. Anyway, the Mediterranean, of course, is to the west. And uh, the regions here of Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, uh, you can, part of Galilee is blocked off there by the word Nazareth. Uh, these are the main regions that we're familiar with so far in the life of Christ's study. I pointed out a number of times that people wishing to travel between uh, Judea down here and uh, Galilee up here would hate to go through this Sumerian region. Why? Well, there were too many Sumerians in there, too many Samaritans in there. And so their normal route would take them across the river, then up this way, and then back into Nazareth or back into Galilee like that. They would rather go around the Samaritan region than uh, actually go through the Samaritan region to get between Galilee and Judea. As a matter of fact, more of the prideful Judeans... Uh, it wouldn't even waste their time going to Galilee in the first place. <laughs> and so to them, it was no big deal that there were Samaritans in between Galilee and Judea. That just kind of keeps the more uncouth uh, Galileans uh, where they belong up there in Galilee. See, And they, their mock and their ridicule for the Galileans even went so far as to uh, identify their particular dialect. When uh, Peter was being exposed there, they recognized he was a Galilean just by virtue of the way in which he spoke. See, and so there were a lot. Of, there was a lot of animosity there, a lot of pride when it comes to Judeans and their uh, the centerpiece of their worship there in the temple, there at Jerusalem. So we will do more. Didn't mean to bring the map down. Uh, we will be doing more of this as the ministry of Christ continues. But for now, we're dealing with the Galilean region, and most of the events are going to center around here, around the Sea of Galilee. And uh, I've drawn it out many times with my own ink drawings and so forth, that River Jordan that proceeds from north to south, and it fills, first of all, the, the Sea of Galilee here, and then it out, comes out of the Sea of Galilee, continues to flow south. Meanwhile, there's more tributaries that add into it, more uh, water sources, streams, rivers, and so forth that flow into it. And so by the time it gets to the Dead Sea, it is a much larger body of water as far as the volume is concerned. But anyway, we'll do more of the studies as I say, 56 episodes in the Galilean ministry means that we're going to be in this particular region for quite some time, uh, dealing with the um, dealing with this particular lake and dealing with the trips across, most of which are in boats, one of which he walks across, uh, other events as well on the northeast side, the southeast side, and hopefully we'll gain a, a better appreciation for um, the geography as we proceed through these studies. All right, that being done now, six things we want to get out of this. Let me just read uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and uh, we're going to bring in the details from Matthew and Mark uh, where we need to. Luke does give the fullest record. Luke chapter 5. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. It's another name for Galilee. Don't worry about it. We'll give you those notes here in a moment. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. 
And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat for them to come and to help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Or go, yes, I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of the fish which they had taken. Verse 10, And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Right, that is the most thorough of the developments. It's, uh, they're a bit shorter in the Matthew record and in the Mark record. And uh, we'll go through some of those details here in the process of this study. Point one in the outline, the Luke account is the fullest. But Matthew, the Matthew and Mark record supplies additional details. The Luke account is the fullest, but the Matthew and Mark uh, records supply additional details. This is always the challenge as we are harmonizing the different gospel records, recognizing that there will be differences. And that's not to say that there are flaws, but that is simply to recognize that there will always be differences when you're dealing with a multitude of authors from their particular perspectives. In this one, I find it to be interesting because... Uh, neither Matthew, Mark, nor Luke was present for this event. Matthew is going to be added to the disciples here shortly, but he comes after these four are called to become fishers of men. Mark, of course, was not even one of the twelve disciples, neither was Luke. And so they're gaining their information from second-hand sources, although Luke was really the, the more diligent historian of the group. And while uh, Paul was in prison in Caesarea for a couple of years, Luke had the opportunity to actually travel, conduct the interviews, speak to the live witnesses, those that were still around, and be able to uh, gather his historical records. So the Luke account is the fullest, but the Matthew and Mark uh, records supply additional details. And we try to be relaxed about the harmonization process. And we really do the best with it, uh, given that we are believers in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. I think the ones that really uh, get into conniptions over these the, the details, the, the differences, the minute differences that are present are really the ones that doubt the divine authorship anyway. And they're trying to propose, uh, propose their source uh, criticism theories or trying to propose their oral traditions hypothesis. And, and so they love to point out what they view as inconsistencies because that just feeds their own myth that, well, these things were just gathered legends anyway. And so we can't really trust any of the stories. All right. Well, we're not going to go there. We're going to recognize, of course, that all Scripture is God-breathed because the Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed, and we just take it from there. All right. And I think we're not going to have any problem with that regard. Why uh, did Matthew and Mark not choose to uh, record the aspects of this uh, miraculous catch and the aspects of this test and the aspects of Peter's uh, confession, as in this uh, Luke account and so forth, because they didn't want to, because it was not keeping with what it was they were recording, and because obviously the Holy Spirit did not inspire them to record those details in their 
records. Let's just real quickly look at Matthew 4, 18 through 22. You'll see it's much shorter, and it's nearly identical to the Mark record. We don't really need to read both. Matthew 4, 18 through 22. Let's see. Yeah, there's really no re- reason to uh, read both Matthew and Mark. Just Matthew will be sufficient. Verse 18 says, As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Uh, here we might have the impression that they were trying to catch fish from the shore, but from the Luke record, we recognize, no, all they were really doing was washing their nets. And that's the purpose for casting the nets. And as they were simply washing them here by the shoreline. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I think the one detail that's, that is found in Mark that's not included in uh, Matthew and Luke is the reference to douloi, the reference to servants in Mark chapter 1. And that not really critical for our uh, exposition of the text, but it is an interesting feature when we start to study exactly how extensive a fishing operation this truly was. And uh, in Mark 1... In verse 20, it says, immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. So this was actually a significant fishing operation with several boats together in a consortium, so to speak. I guess we're going to put modern terms on it. This was a fleet of fishing vessels, including individual uh, fishing partners that would put their own boats, their own fishermen, their own resources into the collective company for the purpose of bringing these uh, these fish to shore. Matter of fact, uh, Josephus even records that uh, in this particular era, there could be every given morning, there could be 200 to 400 fishing boats that would leave uh, Capernaum, for example, to go out there as a part of the, the fishing industry on the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. Now, point two, let's get some geography here. The setting for this episode is the Sea of Galilee. That's how it's referred to in Matthew and in Mark. And that's its most common term, even though it's a lake, not a sea. (laughs) All right. It's commonly called the Sea of Galilee. In particular, it fits with the fact that this is called the Galilean ministry. It's not called the Gennesaret ministry. If you want to be picky and you want to refer to it as the Lake of Gennesaret because you say, well, that's a lake, it's not a sea. Fine. Call it the Lake of Gennesaret. I'm okay with that. But then are you going to refer to this uh, stage of his ministry as the Gennesaret ministry? Or are you going to keep insisting on calling it the Galilean ministry? All right. I have no problem either way, whatever term you want to call it. Or maybe you want to get Roman and call it the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the same body of water. In Matthew and Mark, it's called the Sea of Galilee. Luke calls it the Lake of Gennesaret. It is remarkable, of course, that Luke is a Gentile. He's a physician. He's, he's evidently a man of means. Uh, able to travel, much broader geographic exposure. Uh, Matthew and Mark are more simple, you know, Jewish boys that haven't really traveled very much. And so to them, maybe it appeared like a sea. 
Uh, Luke, with his more extensive traveling, said, no, that's a lake. <laughs> All right, and he calls it the Lake of Gennesaret. In the Gospel of John, it's recorded as the Sea of Tiberias. Of course, John is writing decades later and recognizing that most of his audience is not going to be familiar with the local Hebrew terms anyway. Uh, many of his references are actually given the, the Roman titles for different places. Or he gives the Roman term and then translates and explains why it is that uh, different Hebrew terms were employed. So the Sea of Tiberias you'll find recorded in John 6, 1, John 21, 1, but it's the same body of water when we're talking about the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret. And I've already shown the map up there for you, and I won't need to return to that. Now when we look at Luke in particular, Luke chapter 5, it's, it's remarkable that Matthew and Mark both overlooked this aspect of it, but Luke records the fact that it's, there was a, a great desire for teaching and i think it was beyond just a desire for teaching but i give it to you under point three that nazareth featured an angry mob attempting to press christ off a cliff remember that nazareth featured an angry mob attempting to press christ off of a cliff capernaum however featured a hungry mob pressing christ for more teaching and it is kind of a vivid contrast. In both places, Christ was getting pushed. Jesus was getting pushed. See, even Zoe can understand this. He was getting pushed. In Nazareth, he was going to be pushed off a cliff. But here he was being pushed, and he finally has to get into a boat, get a little bit away from shore, five feet, ten feet, however far, so he can still teach Bible class, while meanwhile the crowds are gathered there on the shore. And he's in a boat, able to, you know, the sound's able to carry, he's able to project, he's able to speak to the crowds here. Remarkable what they did in the ancient world when they didn't have wireless microphones and speakers and amplifiers and things like that. <laughs> How in the world did he preach to the 5,000 on the Sermon on the Mount or different, different venues, see? But was it more than just positive volition for teaching? And uh, it, it's... Not totally spelled out here, but I think the pattern, we're going to definitely start seeing the pattern as we move on. As more and more of the miracles are done, there's more and more of a demand for more miracles. There's more and more of a desire to touch him and have him touch them and to be healed by all sorts of different means. In fact, some of the more sneakier people are going to just creep up to him in the crowd and reach out and try to touch some of his clothes to be healed. And, and actually, the process works when uh, one of the Phoenician women actually gets to touch the hem of his garment and she gets you know, healed and um, different things like that. And it starts to wonder, why, did he, why couldn't he just stay on the beach? Why didn't he just stay on the beach, keep preaching? Were they really pressing that close that he had to get into a boat, that he had to separate by whatever distance there from the shore? I find that uh, uh, more questions than answers, actually. But w when you look through the description of it here, it, it does seem consistent with his need to have some personal space, you know, not be so crowded out when he's trying to teach them. Nevertheless, it's a positive crowd rather than a murdering crowd, and that does uh, strike a uh, quite a contrast between Nazareth and uh, Capernaum. All right, now, class is going on. And um, do you notice who was not in his class? Rather than attending Bible class, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were busy working. 
They're cleaning their nets. They're mending their nets. Rather than attending Bible class, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were busy working. Luke chapter 5, verses 2 and 5, and we also saw it in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and 21. It seemed that Peter and Andrew were actually washing, and James and John were actually mending. Nevertheless, these are the maintenance procedures that you do during the day so that you're ready for tomorrow night's uh, activity in the uh, nighttime fishing that they were engaged in. But they weren't in Bible class. He actually brought the class to them. When the crowds got so unruly, he said, uh, Peter, I need to borrow your boat. Do you mind going out here a little distance? And so Peter had to stop his uh, uh, net washing in order to you know, get, help Jesus get in the boat and go out from shore and, and, and facilitate the, uh, the class being taught. And I think this is interesting, too, because they're not... They are disciples, but they have not left their secular careers. They had followed him in those early days when uh, at the River Jordan and the, the early Judean ministry we've already studied. They were with him as they traveled north through Samaria. Because remember, the disciples had gone into Samaria, into Shechem to buy food while he was out there talking to the woman at the well. They get to Cana of Galilee where he had turned water to wine and he has another miracle there. When the Basilicos comes and says, you've got to come to Capernaum and heal my son and so forth. But then they're gone. And Jesus is by himself when he goes from Cana back to Nazareth and he gets rejected that first time at Nazareth. Where did they go? Well, now we find out where they went. They went back home. They went back to their business. They'd been out of work for too long already. They've got to get their nets back into shape. They've got to get back their skills back into shape. They're a bit rusty, evidently, in their fishing skills because they didn't catch anything last night. I think it was more than just their rusty fishing skills. I believe God sovereignly denied them any fish the night before. We're going to talk about that. But they had been uh, students of his, disciples of his, but had gone back to their careers. Here in this event, they're going to be called to be full-time disciples, leaving behind their secular careers. That they're not only students, but in fact they are teachers themselves in training. Because they're going to have ministry after Christ is gone. And the aspect of training men for the ministry is, is critical. We have patterns here that we're going to try to emulate in upcoming years for the Austin Bible Church uh, Bible College, if such a thing we can formulate, uh, in terms of training men to be pastors, in terms of equipping the next generation of Bible teachers, for example. And there are patterns here, in particular, students being set apart to be students. All right? You say, well, that's pretty ambitious, isn't it? We just barely have a pastor set apart to be a pastor. <laughs> and for four years, we didn't even have a pastor set apart to be a pastor. He was working full time. And then we were able to set him apart to be a pastor. You mean we should set students apart to be students? Well, Christ is setting these men apart to leave their fishing careers and to become fishers of men, to become disciples, to prepare them for their role as apostles once the church age begins. In any event, there are patterns here. We're going to be learning from this passage and other passages as it pertains to the training of men and the uh, preparation for the next generation of ministry. Now, they are not in Bible class, and that's not, that's not wrong, 
All right. They're working. Now, we have a class like this morning. It's a Wednesday morning. We're glad to have the folks that are here that can be here that mainly women, but also some men. And if the work schedule is, is fine and you can be here, super. We're glad to have you here. That's why we changed it from ladies' class to family class. We didn't want the men to feel that, you know, it was wrong for them to be here. If their work schedule allows for it, great. School schedule allows for it, super. But what about all the men that aren't here? Do we think they're any less spiritual? Are we criticizing them? No, they're at work. And there's nothing wrong with that. They should be at work. And so I think there's patterns to be learned from... Uh, from these things as well, I, I expect that, uh, you know, later on this evening, uh, Peter was going to go download the uh, MP3 file and, and you know, get caught up from the Bible class that he missed. No big deal. Right. In any event, point five, Jesus asked Peter to provide logistical assistance for his teaching ministry. Jesus asks Peter to provide logistical assistance for his teaching ministry. Basically, can you move this boat out a little bit? <laughs> you know, Peter, can you row me out here a short distance? But effectively, what is he doing? He is asking Peter to provide logistical assistance. What we call today the logistical support for ministry. And it's so needed. Peter here is going to fulfill this, or Simon as he's called in this text. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. Now what does that mean? It means Peter has to stop what he's doing. He's got to stop mending his nets or stop washing his nets. It means he has to actually uh, assist. And it's, it may seem like no big deal, but it's important for Jesus. It's going to help Bible class continue. And so he puts out a little ways. We don't know how far it is. You know, and you say, well, what's the big deal? Okay, think about all the little things that happen around here, for example, unlocking the doors, turning the air conditioning on, fixing the coffee. Even, uh, you know, this morning I'm missing my sound engineer because he's out there uh, camping with the Boy Scouts. You know, just things like that and all the little details that come together that are very helpful so that the speaker can concentrate on speaking, on teaching, on the material that's been prepared. And he's not worried about, oh, man, I forgot to turn the air conditioning on. All right, things like that. Now, notice Peter, um, Peter does it. He's willing to do it. Matter of fact, these are the things that are helping to prepare Peter for future ministry. See, if Peter's too prideful now, too selfish now to be of this kind of service, what kind of apostle is he going to make down the road? So he's willing to, you know, Steer the boat, do a little bit of rowing, that kind of thing. And uh, when we get into the book of Acts, there's going to be other patterns. For example, Philip the Evangelist. You know what? Before he was Philip the Evangelist, he was Philip the Deacon. How about that? See, I think part of the training process for the next generation of teachers is, are, are these men, are, are they going to be serving in the Sunday school? Are they going to be Sunday school teachers? Are they, are they going to be deacons for a period of years? Are they going to learn the, the different areas of responsibility? Are they willing to change diapers in the nursery? <laughs> you know, and if, uh, if, if a man's really got issues there and he's not willing to, you know, if he thinks that's beneath him. Well, you know, wait a minute. Where is the, what is the mental attitude here? 
So there's a lot of patterns that I think we can glean from the uh, the different things, the different elements, and they're biblical patterns, not just things that we see in in, in real life, for example. I mean the the uh, the officers in the military that we respected absolutely the most were the ones that had previously been uh, soldiers. They'd previously been privates, sergeants, whatever. They'd been enlisted. They'd been soldiers. They knew what it was like to, you know, sleep in a tent and dig in the mud and do all the dirt, you know, dirt grunt kind of work. Then they went to college or ROTC or whatever, officer candidate school. They came back as officers. And those were the officers that we respected the most because they they were grounded in a bit of reality. <laughs> they remembered what it was like to be an enlisted man. See, they weren't just some kid right out of college that thought he knew everything. And it made a big difference. See, and so it's helpful if a pastor has previously been a deacon, he's previously been a Sunday school teacher, he's previously done what have you. So that when he's talking to his deacons, he's not asking anything of them that he hasn't done himself. And he knows what it is they're struggling with. And I, th- I find the pattern here with Peter, and uh, it's just something simple. Roll the boat out here a little bit, all right? And keep it steady. Don't, you know, we don't want it rocking so much, <laughs> okay? Little, little details, and it's so important. Now, we actually get to the meat of this passage into point six. After the public Bible class is over, Jesus has a private lesson for his future apostles. After the public Bible class is over, and as a matter of fact, it is not even recorded what Jesus was preaching about. We don't know what he was teaching those crowds on the beach. Because the inspired record, the record that's given for our edification, is dealing with the calling of these men to be fishers of men. The calling of these apostles, uh, disciples, to leave their secular work and become full-time students under Jesus Christ. Full-time students. I was shocked. I think I mentioned this already. When I was over in Kiev and asked about how the uh, Bible college there was functioning. And by this time I'd met the students. I taught a couple of days worth of classes. I was starting to get a better feel for how the school operated and different things. And uh, and then I asked my host, Jim Dumas, um, I asked, I said, well... What and I realize that the economy is not the greatest there at the moment. I mean, when they're taking pictures of monkeys on your shoulder to earn some cash on the streets, that's different. All right. Um, they don't have the greatest of economies going. It's starting to pick up speed. They're starting to learn about free market capitalism and so forth. And so I asked, I said, what um, I asked about how they were respected in the in the system and as far as the university system goes and they're fully accredited and recognized as a school of higher education and things like that um but then i said well what kind of tuition are these students paying to take these bible courses and so forth and i was stunned when when it was explained to me says well actually we pay them we pay them they are set apart to be students They're set apart to be trained. They're going to be, when they're completed training, they're going to be placed into service. Even now, while they're in training, they're in service. Because each one of them now is expected to be in one of the evangelism outreach ministries. See, they're being taught right now that a laborer is worthy of his hire. 
that the workmen ought to be supported, that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. They're being given even now patterns for grace-giving uh, support of a, of a local church. And uh, anyway, it just amazed me. And then coming back, preparing, continuing on in the life of Christ study, I'm looking at this, and I say, oh, wow, it's the same pattern in the Gospels. Peter and Andrew and James and John, all these guys, they were told to leave their secular careers and follow after Jesus Christ. Set apart from secular working while they were still students. And I thought, well, there's the pattern. We're seeing it in a, in a, on a biblical basis. Now, this private lesson, after the public Bible class is over, notice it says in verse 4, when he had finished speaking. So, whatever he was preaching on is not recorded for us. We don't know. I'm sure it was great. I'm sure it was biblical, but we don't know what it was. He then says to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now, why? Why? <laughs> Did all of a sudden he just, you know, was, thought it'd be a nice break from teaching? You know, I thought, well, I'm in a boat anyway. Let's get further away from shore and let's catch some fish. No, he has a lesson that's going to go along with this. The, the, the miraculous nature of the, the, the hordes and hordes of fish pouring into these nets is going to teach Peter a lesson. It's going to explain to him why he was so dissatisfied the night before. And it's also going to explain to him that the night before was not coincidence. It was not an accident. It was deliberate. It can even serve as a warning that, okay, Peter, you want to continue in your fishing career? Good luck. You're going to go hungry. <laughs> right? So there's a lot. But it's going to be teaching through miracle. The miracle itself is not the point. The miracle is the attention getter. The teaching that goes with the miracle is what makes the point. And hopefully that is a big difference. And it is here. The disciples catch on. Peter especially is just thrown on his face and humbled by this humiliating experience. So the apostles are going to catch on to this. Unfortunately, most of the Jews don't. Most of the Jews, when they see a miracle, they just want more miracles. They think the miracle is the point. When he multiplies the loaves and they get full. Oh man, isn't that great? Do it again. In fact, you do that for us every day, we'll make you king. What a great king. You know, what a super king that would be. You just show up and he gives you food every day. That's what they wanted. Then he starts preaching. Well, don't, don't really want to listen to your preaching. Just give us more food. Well, we're going to get that far when we get into John chapter 6. In particular, the I am the bread of life message. So now here's the Bible class. And we've already read through it, verses 4 through 11. Uh, he says to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked uh, hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. Um, he's not a sloppy worker. He's not lazy. He worked hard. He's a hard fisherman and he's a very successful fisherman. He wouldn't have partnership with all of these other boats if he himself was not very uh, accomplished. If Peter himself was not um, any good at what he was doing. He was a great fisherman. That's why Zebedee formed the partnership with him. That's why these other boats formed partnership with him. And Zebedee was no slouch either because he has not only his sons, but he's got hired servants. So Zebedee's got his own operation going. See, These are all the details we get when we 
um, put the gospel records together and, and put these little details all into, into a line and say, okay, let's analyze all these separate facts. Zebedee has hired servants, plural. He has two grown sons. He has his own successful enterprise, but he is called the partner of Simon. Gives us another clue as to the fact that Peter was probably the oldest of these 12 disciples. If he was a full partner with Zebedee, the father of James and John. And kind of gives us a, a generational aspect there. Peter was probably old enough to be James or John's father or close to it. So we worked hard. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. In your secular career, we hope you do work hard. But results may come, results may not come. That's still in God's sovereign plan to, to what he chooses to provide. And caught nothing, but I will do as you say, let down the nets. When they had done this, and we've already read through this, and, you know, fish like you wouldn't believe, packing the nets out. What was the difference? Was he working any harder now? No. It's all sovereignty at work. It's all what the will of the Father happens to be. And right now the Father is directing for this miracle to take place so that Jesus Christ can teach the important lessons. Verse 7, they signal to their partners. We're going to key in on the word partners because that's really the meat of this study and it's the impact for what it is we're called to do as believers in Jesus Christ. We are partners. We are fellow workers with God the Father. He calls us fellow workers. We're not worthy of it. And he's still the one doing all the work. Nevertheless, we're called partners. And likewise, in verse 10, where in the New American Standard we have the word partners once again. It bothers me that, the same, that two different Greek words are both translated partners. They have partners in verse 7 and they have partners in verse 10. And they're two separate Greek words. But the New American Standard calls them both partners. And I think that's a, that's a flaw in this particular chapter. Since the original text has two different words, I think that the translation ought to have two different words, at least, if nothing more, than to draw to your attention that there's two concepts being employed here. And both of the concepts are concepts that we relate to as partners in fellowship, fellow laborers with Jesus Christ. Sub point A. Their secular work the previous night was fruitless. Their secular work the previous night was fruitless. Even though they'd worked hard. They weren't lazy. They weren't stupid. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to catch fish. They've been doing it for years. Since they were children, undoubtedly. Their dads had taught them. But the night before was fruitless. I'm reminded of Psalm 127 and verse 2. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Let me just grab that real quick so I'm not misquoting it. Psalm 127 and verse 2. Verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. You can have as many guards as you want, but if the Lord's given the city over, you're not going to defend the city. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late. So you think you can burn the midnight oil? You think you can just work harder? You can sacrifice some sleep? You can put more hours in at the office? What are you really going to get out of all that? Nothing. 
If the Lord is working to deny you any of that satisfaction, to deny you any of that provision, to eat the bread of painful labors, you know, you're just racking yourself with all the pain and effort and agony, and what have you accomplished? Maybe you have earned some money. Maybe you have put bread on the table. Maybe you can eat it, eat the bread of painful labors. What are you really doing? Pursuing emptiness. Because you're defying the will of God in this, in this context. For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. You know, the real remarkable thing is, is that if you are grace-oriented, if you do have a relaxed mental attitude, if you recognize that all of your labors are his labors, then you can rest. Then you can know that even when you're not working hard, he's still providing for you. If that makes any sense. He's providing for you in times of rest. Thank him for the rest. He's providing for you in times of work. Thank him for the work. And don't be wrapped up in the fact that you've got to do more work and you've got to sacrifice your rest to get it and all the rest of this. Just rest in faith that says, you know what? The Lord provides. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And make sure that you're walking in his will and not trying to bring about these things through human effort. Remember, Solomon's the one that tried everything under the sun and found that it was all vanity. So the secular work the previous night was fruitless. And it may come to that in terms of a person's calling to service. All right? And this is their calling to service. This has nothing to do with their salvation. The Lordship crowd tries to turn this into their gospel call. That this is where they got saved. And since we've been careful to do the harmony of the gospels, we know that they were saved long before this. That they were, they were saved prior to even coming to Christ. That they were saved into the, probably into the Baptist ministry or maybe even prior to that. But they were clearly believers at the point where they were following John the Baptist. And then when they moved on to follow Christ, when they were baptizing with Christ, I think he was using a bunch of unbelievers to baptize when he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom and all that, the baptism of repentance. No, they were saved. They've been saved. They're saved here in Luke 5. He's calling them to full-time service, to leave their secular career and become disciples, full-time paid, supported students preparing for their own ministries. That's what this calling is. All right, now the Lordship Salvation crowd can't really handle that. They don't like having a salvation calling and a service calling because they've made service calling a requirement for being saved. That you have to not only believe in Christ, but you have to submit to Him as Lord of your life and follow your service calling right from day one or you're never saved. That's Lordship Salvation. That's John MacArthur and that whole crowd. All right? I think I even have... No, I did not. I had considered putting some quotes in there from MacArthur and some of these other guys that try to insist that this was their saving event. Just to illustrate... The, the, the faulty thinking behind that. Now, dissatisfaction, that can be a tool. That can be a tool. And it may not have to do with literal success or failures, whether they catch fish or not can catch fish, because they might catch fish and still have no fulfillment in that. See, uh, maybe they have a career going, they're making money, but you know what? They're just not content. They know that Something, something's wrong. They need to be doing something else. I'll never forget when John Blakely told me, that he said, don't, don't ever become a pastor. I was 21 years old thinking about becoming a pastor, thinking that that was my gift. 
I didn't know. I was just exploring it. I just thought maybe that was my gift. And um, I'd done some Bible studies and some friends uh, had been able to explain some things. And, and it's, it uh, made sense to them. And they said, you know, you really have a, a way to explain the Bible. That makes a lot of sense. And I thought, hmm, maybe, maybe there's a gift there. You know, so I started to pray about it and explore it. And uh, went down to Portland, Oregon with uh, Pastor um, John Eichmann. He was doing a conference down there. And while we were there, we talked to uh, Pastor uh, Ron Blakely. And uh, told him, I said, you know, I think this might be my gift. What do you think I should do? And he said, well, don't do it. He said, don't be a pastor. And that shocked me. <laughs> I said, what do you mean, don't do it? Why not? He said, unless you have to. He said, if you can be content doing anything else, then do that. Because you're not a pastor. But if there's no contentment in anything else, then... You may have the pastor teach your gift, and you better be obedient to that calling. And I'll never forget it. And he made it very clear there was a difference between success and contentment. He says you can probably be successful in a dozen fields. I'm not talking about successful. I'm talking about content. If you can't be content doing anything else, you need to be a pastor. And that really made an impact. In fact, he died within three months of that. The Lord took him home. And, and so these are the impressionable memories in that summer of our spring of um, 1990 that, uh, that I'll never forget. Found him slumped over his Bible in a study on a Monday morning. What a way to go. That's perfect. You get a full day of Sunday in. You preach your final messages. You don't know your final messages. You're just doing what you're supposed to be doing. You go into the office on Monday morning. You open up your Bible. And the Lord takes you home. All right? I don't know who found him you know, slumped over his Bible, but that might have been a little bit shocking. But yeah, I think it's the perfect way to go. I used to think dying in the pulpit was the perfect way to go. You know, that you, you teach your last Bible class, you close in prayer, and then you collapse. But that could be a shock to the flock. So, you know, maybe not. <laughs> the study is more private than the pulpit. Maybe. Contentment. The night before... They had failure. No fish. Why not? What, and most likely beyond that one incident have been several incidents of no contentment. Several incidents of, you know what, this fishing business just isn't the same anymore. Not like it was when we were doing the baptisms and preaching the kingdom of heaven and the, the things that were going on down there in, in the Judean ministry. Just going back to fishing just wasn't the same. Later on, after the cross, it's just kind of a thing to do because, well, you know, depressed. <laughs> Peter said, well, I'm going fishing. Who wants to go? You know, Christ is crucified and, well, what else are we going to do? Let's go fishing. No contentment. They got work to do. And so these are the patterns that we want to glean in terms of observing young men and what their gift might be and observing where they're, what their calling might be if they are, in fact, called to preach. An aspect of a, a lack of contentment and a need, a, a, a drive. Jeremiah said there was a fire in his heart, and if he didn't preach the word of God, it was just going to burn him up inside. That's the kind of calling that, that the Lord employs to uh, make it clear that these men need to be doing something. Now, I want to focus on our time remaining, and, and actually this will probably stretch on into next week, to Simon's partners. Simon's partners. 
And there's two terms that are employed here. We're going to do spend some time with each one of them. His partners are about to become partners of Jesus Christ. Simon and his partners. Simon and his partners are about to become partners of Jesus Christ. And there are two to- terms employed. They're called metakoi and they're called koinonoi. We want to learn both terms. And I may keep using the Greek terms till we get used to them and not translate them. I think all too often when a term gets translated, you lose the uh, appreciation for what the term originally was. And you can even adopt entirely foreign words into your own vocabulary, such as so many Spanish words today are part of the English vocabulary, just because we've used them all the time. So his metakoi and his koinonoi. And these are the terms you want to learn. Metakoi. This is the first one. M-E-T-O-C-H-O-I. Metakoi. That's in the plural. O-S is the singular ending. Metakos. And I'll give you the vocabulary here in a moment. For metakos and also for koinonos. Simon's partners. Metakoi and Koinonoi. K-O-I-N-O-N-O-I. Koinonoi. It has both the short O, the Omicron is the short O, and the Omega, this W looking letter is the Omega, is the long O. So Kappa, Omicron, Iota. Kappa, Omicron, Iota, New. That V-looking thing is an N. The W is an O. Another N. O-I. K-O-N-O-N-O-I. Koinonoi. In the plural. Koinonoi. Metakoi, koinonoi. Oi endings both being plural endings. Singulars you'll see in a moment are both O-S endings. Now... They're about to become metakoi of Jesus Christ. They're about to become koinonoi of Jesus Christ. And the, the impact of metakoi and koinonoi are vital for church-age believers to recognize because you and I are likewise metakoi of Jesus Christ, or we ought to be, and koinonoi of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to have any fellowship, this is the word for fellowship, if we're going to have any koinonia fellowship, with one another, if we're going to have any fellowship with God the Father and with His Son, it means we need to be koinonoi ourselves. So we'll have verses that pertain to both of these. Metakoi, by the way, is uh, partakers. Partakers. It's the big, it really is the vocabulary that drives the, uh, the Jody Dillo book, The Reign of the Servant Kings, if you're familiar with that book. Has anybody read Dillo? Ethel, have you read Dillo? Okay. Jody Dillo, Reign of the Servant King. It's a wonderful book. On about your eighth time reading it, then some things really start to make sense. And um, I, uh, I do recommend it with some cautions. But the primary impact is this word metakoi, to become partners, to become partakers. Because the metakoi are promised eternal rewards. And those who reject their Medicoy responsibilities suffer eternal loss. 
And that's reward versus loss of reward. It has nothing to do with salvation or loss of salvation. It has to do with the, <clears throat> the overcomers that are indeed the metacoi, that are the partakers of Jesus Christ and uh, the responsibility we have. We're going to have vocabulary on that here as well. Now, in verse 7, it's metacoi. They signal to their metacoi in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats. And I wanted to look up. There's a third word here even, too. There's fellows in uh, companions in verse 9. And I failed to take note of what the word there was for companions. So I'm going to take a look at Luke 5, 9 and see what the uh, term for companions was there as well. Because there's partners in verse 7 and in verse 10 that are different terms. Okay. Just came on tone. Interestingly enough, companions. Ah, soon episcopos. Okay, so that does not deal with what we're looking at here in terms of partner or fellowship. Hmm. Okay, well, good. Glad I looked it up. Partners, metakoi and kononoi. About to become metakoi and kononoi of Jesus Christ. First of all, metakoi. Subpoint one now, Metacos. Man, you got five minutes to get all this vocabulary down. You feel up to it? <laughs> or maybe we should slow down and get back to this next week. Metacos, M-E-T-O-C-H-O-S. This X-looking thing is the Greek letter chi. It's like the first letter of Christos. It's like, you know, Jesus Christ. That's why we put a an X in some places. It's the Greek letter chi. Christopher starts with a chi. Metakos. M-E-T-O-C-H-O-S. 3353 in the Strong's Index. A partaker or a partner. Not just a business partner, but somebody who actually is partaking of the activity, partaking uh, of the event. <laughs> Such as the great pinecone war yesterday between Troop 146 and Troop 516. Everyone that was fully partaking of the Great Pinecone War was a full metacos. There were, I think, three boys who chose not to partake. Most everyone else, though, was partaking. That is, they were fully involved. They were themselves, of their own volition, engaged in the activity based on their own priorities, their own sense of uh, honor in defending the campsite from invasion. Those infiltrators who are trying to creep through the gully and get into our campsite. Obviously, they needed to be repelled. So they became partakers in the Great Pinecone War. Well, Metacos, we are partakers as well. We are not simply recipients of grace blessings. We're not just simply objects of mercy. We are recipients. We are beneficiaries, but we're also partakers. 
Not only has Christ redeemed us by his blood, we have become partakers of Jesus Christ. We are baptized in Christ. As he died, we died. As he was buried, we are buried. As he rose again, we too might rise in newness of life. We are partakers. And so the uses of metakos are quite interesting. Luke chapter 1 and verse 7 gives us a sense for this. Ooh. Thought I had double checked all these. Luke one seven, they had no child. Uh that should be Luke five seven. Yeah, that's that's our verse here in Luke five seven. Not Luke one seven, Luke five seven. They're partners in the boat. Hebrews chapter one. Let's get a look at those. Hebrews chapter one. In verse 9, this is with reference to the Son. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your metakoi. Companions, partners, partakers, those who are partaking of your activity. Translated there, companions. In chapter 3, in verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, metakoi of a heavenly calling, partakers of a heavenly calling. You're not just simply passive recipients. You're not just simply observers. You're not here to be entertained. I think far too many believers in the church age have their orientation to religion as basically, well, I'm a passive recipient. Entertain me. Gratify my spiritual senses. I come to church so, you know, I can be dazzled. The music can leave me wowed and the the uh, elaborate temple that they build can leave me impressed with the architecture and the the brilliance of the speaker can leave me just filled with this sense of wonder and awe and oh isn't church a fun thing to do no there's we're not here for the entertainment we're not here for the senses to be stimulated we want the soul to be stimulated we want the human spirit to be convicted but you're not just Passive uh, spectators, you're partakers. And that's a huge difference. It's not just coming to church and being acted upon. I want to be encouraged. I want to be built up. I want to be blessed. And if I'm not getting anything out of it, well, I'm going to go somewhere else where it's all about me. And what do I get? No. You're partakers. Not just what are you getting, what are you giving. Because you're a partaker. What are you contributing? Who are you encouraging? Who are you strengthening? Who are you coming alongside and edifying? That's the nature of being a partaker. Partakers of a heavenly calling. We all have a heavenly calling. It's not just... We, we tend to use the word calling as a vocational term that refers to the ministry. And so we say, well, the pastor has been called called the ministry he's in the ministry and unfortunately that's the nature of the vocabulary the nature of 
the terminology as it's been come in, into use. The pastor was called to the ministry. He was called to the ministry in the spring of 1990. He made certain of that call through the winter of 90 into the spring of 1991. He then trained for the ministry from 91 to 94. He then looked for, for placement into service throughout the length of 1995. And in November of 1995, he was called to the pulpit of Austin Bible Church. Well, guess what? We all have callings. Not just ministers. Not just pastors. Every believer has a calling. You have a gift. You have a calling. And the gifts and calling are irrevocable. Well, there's more. And uh, we'll have to leave off with this. I'll drop my notes so I know where we've left off. And we'll pick up here one week from today. Lord willing, rapture pending. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that not only in this class, but in the classes to come. Father, I pray that we would be oriented to our gifts, to our callings. That, Father, we would recognize that each one of us is a partaker of a heavenly calling. Each one of us is a part of the overall body. Each one of us has a role to play in the local assembly. And I pray that we might be diligent to find that calling, to make use of our gifts, to edify our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, I just pray that these upcoming classes might likewise be an encouragement and be a challenge. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.